And uh, I'm going to tell you all of the rest of church history tonight. And we are going to know all there is to know about church history in the next 40 minutes. We really got to touch on some of my favorite characters. Of course, Martin Luther was the person we talked about last time. All right, so Martin Luther was really the, one of the chief characters of the Reformation. Martin Luther and John Calvin are the chief characters of the Reformation. John Calvin being a Frenchman, Martin Luther being a German. The, church, the Catholic Church didn't just dry up and go away. On the other side of the Reformation are tremendous people like St. Ignatius Loyola. Ignatius Loyola is just a tremendous figure, and uh, we're going to study him a little bit. Let's start with him. Ignatius Loyola was born in 1491, and he's a very interesting character because he was appointed at uh, the age of 16 to serve as a page to Juan Velazquez, the treasurer of the kingdom of Castile. <laughs> and, uh, and so he learns about rich Corinthian leather, and he learns about the Cordoba. So anyways, he, gets, he, gets, he is raised in royalty, and he is raised in this, uh, this court atmosphere in a very romantic era in the kingdom of Castile. So by the time he's in his late teens, he is swaggering around with a sword and a coat of mail, and he is, you know, a big feather up the top of his head, and he is quite the guy, and he is chasing all of the girls, and he is really something else. He ends up, he is in charge of the army now, you know, and he is, as he moves up, he's moving up in the ranks of the Spanish army. The Spanish army. He is quite the dude. Er, as he is becoming this romantic, swashbuckling, Hollywood-type figure, he's out in front leading his troops, and the Spanish are fighting the French at the time. He sees that they're hopelessly outnumbered, and he says, we will charge anyway. We will win. They, they're trying to get out of this thing. They see that they're hopelessly outnumbered, and he is such a dude that off they go, and they, they engage in this battle, and he gets a cannonball that comes right between his legs and tears off one calf and smashes the other leg in half. And when he falls, the rest of the guys go, good, now we could quit. You know, <laughs> white flag, and, and they give up. They're treated well by the French, fortunately, and especially he is because of his... Great gallantry. And, you know, the guy was really quite a figure uh, on the field. And because, because of his f just imposing character on the field, the French, instead of just throwing him into prison, carry him back to the hospital and try to put him back together, which is very difficult in the 1500s to deal with those kinds of things. And so without anesthesia, without anything to help him, they reset the bone, and you know one bone is sticking out of his leg, and they, they pull and they try to do things, and it's not quite right, so they break it again, and they reset it, and it's still not quite right, so they saw off a chunk of the bone, and it's never quite right. And because of you know, his great illnesses, it takes him quite a while to recuperate. So usually illnesses for soldiers of, of that kind are, are fatal. And uh, this is the 1500s, and in the, in the 1800s, medicine really didn't advance that much further so that um, during the Civil War, if you got shot through the arm, what was the preferred way of, of treating that? <laughs> they would just saw that arm off. If you got shot through the leg, what did they do? Saw off the leg. That was pretty much medicine in those days. So it was quite, uh, quite the deal that they didn't saw those things off, and he's recovering. And so while he's recovering, he asks for romantic books. 
because these are his favorite things to read. They did not have any romantic books for him. Instead, they give him the life of Christ. And they give him uh, other Christian reading. And so he begins to read it in his sort of manly, manly way. And he starts looking at it like, I will do better than the saints. And these great saints did these certain acts. Well, I can do them and do them one better. And so he's got, he's got a tune, but it, God can use your tune. I think it was Ed Cole that said, God does not completely throw away your personality. God redeems your personality. So, I mean, if you're sweet and kind, God's not going to necessarily make you bold and rude. He's going to use your sweetness and your kindness. But if you're brash and a man like Loyola, <laughs> God will use that and redeem that in such a way that he will make you what he became and a real captain of men. God redeems his character. He studies the life of Christ and he, he gives his life to, to, to Jesus at this time. Not much later, he begins to study for the priesthood and he uh, uh, goes and he stays in a cave. And he was just going to stay there for a couple of days and just pray for a little while. He ends up staying there for 10 months. And during this 10-month period where he uh, lives just on alms, he's a, he's a beggar. And, and excuse me, let me back up just one step. He goes to a, uh, a church and there, in his wonderful Loyola style, he takes off his sword, he unbuckles his sword, and he places it on the Virgin Mary at the church, and he humbles himself. He dedicates himself to the Lord, and he gives Mary his sword, and he, and he leaves it there in the church. It's very romantic. I like this guy. You got to like this. This is fun. This is, this is a good stuff, you know. And so, so he leaves this, you know, like a gunslinger. Yeah, there it is. Very good. He leaves his gun belt there in the church and he leaves all his uh, fancy clothes and all that sort of stuff. And he goes and he goes to this cave. Well, he's still, he's still a young man. And in this cave, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's given up the sword, but he still remembers the ladies. And it's, now this is kind of an issue here. I mean, here's this young man and he, he's given his life to, to Christ. He's not married and uh, he has to deal with his passion. He, um, begins to start to see that in his heart, as he would meditate on following Christ, he would become strengthened. And that as he meditated on following Christ, his wounds wouldn't hurt quite as bad and his body was, would heal better. But as he started to follow his passions, <laughs> that everything was not going as well. And so he started to discern between right and wrong. And and he developed a book called The Spiritual Exercises. Very important book. All of the Jesuits, which he is the founder of that order, study the spiritual exercises and, and very influential book for world history and especially in church history. So there in this cave, it, more of this spiritual battle and the spiritual warfare continues to go on. It takes him a while to really conquer his flesh and gain the ascendancy of his spirit. 10 months. He expected it just to be a couple of days. But for him, it was a period of 10 months. If you study the life of many of these great men and women who follow Christ and become very influential and become very important, you see that there is a transition period from when they give their heart to Christ to when they actually become anointed and effective for Christ. Now, for some people, 
that transition period is lifelong and it never really finishes. But for the ones who really make a difference in the world, there's a beginning of that period, there is a determination to go through that period, and there is an ending and an anointing at the end of that period. For Jesus, how long was it? Forty days. Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, and it was the Holy Spirit that sent him. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to pray and fast for 40 days. He was led by the Holy Spirit to do these things. Do not forsake the discipline of the Spirit of God in your life. It is enormously important. Perhaps if I have time to get all the way to it, in the 1940s, there was the Great Healing Revival, and there were tremendous, tremendous uh, miracles that took place during this healing revival in our own, you know, in our own times, really. But many of the people, men, who were greatly used in that healing revival died very early. Jack Coe died before he was 40. I think he died at like 36 or something like that. Some tremendously young age. And yet, Jack Coe had the biggest tent. Jack Coe had a tent bigger than Oral Roberts. And Jack Coe had just this tremendous miracle ministry and yet was dead before he was 40. Why? Because of his personal passions had not yet been completely crucified. The guy was just a glutton and he was an overweight, short, rotund uh, man who, who did not uh, check his excesses in certain areas. When the power of God is flowing through somebody's life in that measure, you are going to be judged a lot faster and a lot sooner and in a much greater way. We pray for tremendous apostolic power, but do you remember what happened after the Holy Spirit came and Ananias and Sapphira brought in their offering? Here it is. Here's the whole thing. Is that the whole thing? Yes, yeah, the whole thing. So when that kind of power is at work in the church, which we're all praying for, that level of holiness is required in the church. Don't lose sight of this. Don't lose sight of this. It's, it's tremendously important. A.A. Allen, who was a great preacher in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, who died at the Jack Tar Hotel in San Francisco, probably from alcoholism, writes in his memoirs and in his writings that when he was praying for that tremendous anointing, he went into a closet and would not come out. He locked himself in the closet, told his wife, don't give me any food, don't give me anything, even if I beg you for food, even if I try to come out, don't let me out of the closet. I'm going in there to get the anointing. And I'm not coming out of that closet until I get the anointing. And in every one of these biographies, in every one of these people we study, you need to see what they went through, the price that they paid, the price that you're going to have to pay, the price that's going to have to be paid in your life to get the anointing that you want to have. It's free, but it's not cheap. And you are going to have to pay your share of the price in personal holiness to get that power to operate through your life. And so Alan stayed in that closet until the Spirit of God gave him 13 things that he had to get right in his life. And he didn't tell everybody what those were. Some of them he did tell, and some of them he kept very personal and very private. And then he writes and says that when he was in Oakland, Oakland, California, that miracles were breaking loose 
like they had never seen in any of his, any of his meetings before. Tremendously powerful miracles began to take place in his, in his ministry in Oakland. And he said, I checked off number 13 just last month. I checked off number 13. In other words, God gave him that list of 13 things and they didn't get worked out by Tuesday. They were worked out over a period of time. And that took a while for him to do. Now, we need to learn from these things. We really need to see these things and learn from these things. So, we're back with Loyola. Loyola goes to this cave and for 10 months, he works through his passions and works through and, and at the end of that time, he comes out and he, feel, and he has conquered the worldly passions and he is ready and sold out for God. Now, he's a military man and he's a bold man and he's working at the time of the Inquisition when the Inquisition just is at, at its peak. And several times he's just thrown into prison just because he's just a little too different, a little too bold, a little too brash. He's trying to influence people. And he's telling people about Jesus and he's, he's just really too fired up and so something's wrong with you. And often he was cast into prison at the time just for being different. But he is studying for the priesthood and, and to become a full-fledged priest you had, to become a, you had to be a scholar in Latin and he never had Latin training. And so he has to go back to school with the little kids to learn Latin. And here's this grown man, quite the proud man. He has to sit there in the little desks and stuff and learn Latin with the little kids before he can get into college and start studying. And, but he does, and it takes him literally one-third of the remainder of his life to complete his education. Yet he does it. And he does what is required. And he gets kicked out of several schools and things like this. And finally, he goes from one school to another and finally ends up in a school in Paris where he starts to become very influential and which is also one of the reasons why he's getting kicked out of these different schools. But he starts to, to meet different, very strong, very influential men also. And they're, they're drawn to him. Make a long story short, he, he does a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. But uh, Jerusalem is, is now embroiled with the battles between the Christians and the Turks. And he's, and he's told to leave because the Turks are kidnapping the Christians and then charging a ransom for him. And the Pope is having to, and the Christians are having to pay these ransoms to ransom out the Christians, and it's quite expensive. And so they just say, get out of here. And he gets kicked out of Jerusalem, and he's upset about that. And he, he kind of had this dream of becoming sort of this great priest or bishop in Jerusalem, or, or living a sort of a Christ-like life in Jerusalem. And it never came to pass. He ends up back in, in Rome, and he, he pulls all his buddies together, and eventually they go to the Pope, and they say, we want to follow you and we want to go wherever you send us, and we bind ourselves together as a group, and we want you to send us wherever you'll send us, and eventually the Pope gives them his blessing, and they found an order. It at first was given certain restrictions. You can't have more than 60 members and, and different things, but you're going to basically be the servants of the Pope. Found missions and found schools and things like this. It was missions and schools were, were two of the, of the primary directives. They called themselves the Society of Jesus. Literally, it was the Company of Jesus, meaning the military word, like a company uh, in, of troops. And that was the, the actual word. And it, it became sort of shortened into the Society of Jesus. And it was called derogatively the Jesuits. And the Jesuits really were the, the missionaries that founded the, the missions that, that come up through California, those Catholic missions that all are Jesuit missions. The Jesuits became the great 
Catholic missionary group. This is really the same time as Martin Luther and the Reformation. The Jesuits, which really were, were founded by about a hand, just a handful of people, grew to over 1,000 members, and it was a very, you couldn't get in very easily. It, they had very, very difficult membership requirements, and they were, first of all, to get in, it, it involved a tremendous amount of education, but they founded schools all over the world. By the time of Loyola's death, only 16 years after they were granted their charter from the Pope, he lived only 16 years more. But their, their numbers were now up to 1,000 members and climbing in just that 16-year period. Francis Xavier was one of Loyola's first buddies who he met at the University of Paris. Francis Xavier was one of the first great Catholic missionaries. Francis Xavier went to the Far East, and he went to India and to Japan, to the Philippines, and to China. It is said that over one million people were converted in a 10-year period under Xavier's ministry. He traveled to an incredible amount of places and suffered tremendous persecution because he was primarily traveling with uh, Portuguese uh, sailing ships and the Portuguese weren't really all that friendly to the Italians and the Portuguese soldiers were just obnoxious in town so they would arrive to a place and here he is trying to evangelize the multitudes and the Portuguese soldiers are killing them. To the, to the local population, he's one of them. And so, it, it, very, very difficult conditions. He, uh, he meets a, uh, a man from Japan in part of his, tra his travels. His, his name is Ansir. Some sort of English modification of it is anger. <laughs> it was this guy. Anger teaches him Japanese, brings him to Japan. He spends his whole first year in Japan learning Japanese. He learns Japanese in a year and begins preaching in Japanese in Japan. This is quite an accomplishment. And, and converts many, many people in Japan to, to the Catholic faith. So just a tremendous man, Francis Xavier, who was one of the first Jesuits. And so the Jesuits become kind of the Catholic missions organization, and they become the Catholic education founders and, and, and start many Catholic schools and universities all over the world. And so that is really sort of the counter-reformation that the Catholic Church takes off on as the Reformation movement in Northern Europe takes, uh, takes off. So Loyola and the Jesuits are a fascinating uh, study. Jesuit schools are all over California, all over the United States. How, anybody here attend a Jesuit school uh, growing up? Anybody here know of a Jesuit school? Is, is Sarah High School a Jesuit school? I believe it is. Sarah High School is a Jesuit school. So Jesuit schools are, they have just very, very high uh, academic standards. And uh, it's really qu quite impressive what uh, the, the Jesuit tradition. So let's move forward to John Wesley. John Wesley is really one of my great heroes of the Christian faith. John Wesley was born in 1703 in England and died in 1791 in England. John Wesley was one of the youngest children. He was like the 13th, of, 13th child or 15th child of Susanna Wesley. His father was a uh, minister, an Anglican minister. At the time in England, there was only the Church of England. 
and uh, I grew up Church of England. And Church of England really was just a half step off of Catholicism. It was basically the Catholic Church, now with an English king, but just a, just a hairbreadth off of Catholicism. Some of the ideas of the Reformation uh, made it into the Anglican Communion, but all of the practices were really inherited from the Catholic Church. Very formal, uh, everything happened in the church, and it was illegal to preach or minister or preach the gospel outside the church. You couldn't do that. And so John Wesley and his, uh, his brother Charles and uh, George Whitfield, spelled, w, spelled Whitefield, are students at Oxford University. Backing up just a, a quick step, when John Wesley was five or six years old, his house burned down and he was dramatically rescued from his house and there's a, a famous phrase, he was a brand plucked from the burning, that he was a firebrand that was plucked from the fire. There was a dramatic, he was, his life was dramatically uh, rescued and, and there just seemed to be something special about him. Here he is at Oxford University. He and his buddies, very, very studious, very, very serious, follow all of the dictates of this, at the time, very religious school. And they would get up very early and read their Bibles and, and always have very studious prayer times. And they just, they just lived by the book. Their detractors had all kinds of funny names for them, including the Bible moths, because they were just in their Bibles so much. They were called by their detractors the Methodists because their strict methods, they followed the methods of the university and they had strict methods for their life and their conduct. It is said that when Wesley read the Bible, and I've said this before, but it's very important, that he read the Bible on his knees and after each verse of the Bible, he would pray, Holy Spirit, give me illumination and understanding of this verse. And he read the Bible cover to cover several times in that fashion, one verse at a time, praying over each verse of the Bible. From that type of scripture study, he could quote long passages of the Bible as he preached in open air meetings later on. So Wesley becomes a minister, He's an Anglican minister, and he goes to Georgia, the American colony of Georgia, on a ship from London, where he is uh, going to be the minister of a church. And as he's sailing over from London to America, they encounter a very violent storm. And Wesley, who's about to go become the leader and the great pastor and the shepherd of the flock, is quivering in his boots. He is scared to pieces over this storm, all the while there are these wonderful Moravians on board who are just totally calm and not worried in the least. And the Moravians are just saying that it's our faith in Christ. We know where we're going. Wesley's just like, I'm going to go pastor this church and I'm going to go save the world and do these great things. And uh, these guys are like, we have no problem. And Wesley's like, ah, he's completely scared. And, but he knows there's something different about you guys. You Moravians are, are, are just different folks. Well, he comes, to, he comes to America. He preaches in England, I mean, Georgia. He sees just the tremendous cruelty and, and, and horrible conditions of, of American slavery. And it's just, it's just abhors him. But also, while he preaches in this church, he is a very 
high English preacher, and he has his high English standards, and the Americans didn't care for it very much. And he falls in love with this one girl, and she ditches him and marries somebody else, and he refuses her communion. The Americans just say, we've had enough of you. You are a jerk. Get out of here. And, and, they, and they kick him out. They kick him out because he, he just has this complete failure in his, in his first year in America. And then he goes back with his tail between his legs back to England. But he goes to, he looks for these Moravians when he gets back to England. And he starts hanging out with these, with these Moravians. And how many of you have ever heard of the term Aldersgate? It's kind of a famous, famous Methodist word. Aldersgate Street is this, is this mission where Wesley is listening to the Moravians and he gets saved. And he gets, he gets even though he's just totally uh, immersed in the Bible and, and in Christianity, he really doesn't have a personal salvation and a personal relationship with Christ. It's really interesting. But he finally gets and he says his, he felt his heart was strangely warmed. Famous Methodist uh, term. At uh, quarter to nine in the evening in Aldersgate Street. So famous Methodist terms. You'll hear these things over and over again. After the Aldersgate experience with the Moravians, he uh, hooks up again with his buddies, George Whitfield and, and the others from the, the Methodist, the Holy Club, these Bible moths. And George Whitfield has been preaching outside the church. He's been preaching out in the streets, and it's working great. And Whitfield is just having tremendous results outside the church. And he says, Wesley, come on, you got to come see this. And Wesley goes over in to see this, and it's, wow, this is incredible. And so Wesley picks up on Whitfield's methods and starts preaching to the coal miners. And with tremendous success, the coal miners would, there would be just hundreds and hundreds would line up in the morning to go down the shafts into the coal mines. And this is in, in England. And then they would come out again afterwards. They were completely neglected by the Church of England. The Church of England was kind of an upper crust thing, and, and these poor coal miners who were just paid miserable wages, treated miserably and terribly poor, were just ignored. And so he goes and he's, and he's preaching, you know, God loves you. And, and they just really are, it is, his message is extremely popular with them. And the Church of England really starts to fight him. And you can't do that. You're not, you're not supposed to be doing these things. And, and he, at first, he really tries to listen to the Church of England, and he never schedules a meeting on a Sunday morning at the same time as a Church of England meeting, and to his dying day, never uh, steps outside of the Anglican communion. He is always an Anglican minister the whole time, but at the same time, there are these prayer societies and religious societies that were all very fashionable in London, and that was okay, is to have little religious societies. And so what he called his group was, a, was the Methodist Society. And so the Methodist Society is okay. You can, have a, a, you can have one of these societies. And there were several, there were many of them at the time. And so his Methodist Society is, is acceptable, but his preaching outside the church is the real bone of contention. The official view of this is very dark and very dim, and, and they're tremendously persecuted. In fact, uh, when, when they preached in Ireland, the, the bars would empty, organizers would send them into the churches, and they would go beat up everybody. He'd be preaching in the church, and the ruffians would come out of the bars, run through the back doors, and just start beating everybody on the head, and attacking the women, and all kinds of stuff, and they'd have to all run for their lives. And that was the kind of persecution that they experienced.
The genius of John Wesley, the genius of my other great, well, the, all three of them, the genius of Loyola, the genius of Wesley, and the genius of William Booth were that they were tremendous organizers. And it's because of their tremendous organizational ability that these movements spread and increased and lasted after their deaths. So Wesley is a brilliant, brilliant organizer. His brother Charles Wesley is the one who wrote many of our, our beautiful hymns that we still use today. And it was John Wesley who converted the slave ship captain who wrote the great song, Amazing Grace. It was John Wesley who, um, before he died, wrote a letter to William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was the parliamentarian who went into English Parliament with the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. And every day that he was in English Parliament, he spoke against slavery all his life. It took him something like 20 or 30 years until on his deathbed, on Wilberforce's deathbed, slavery was finally abolished in England. And it was abolished in England many, many years before it was abolished in the United States because of the work of this man, William Wilberforce. Wesley's letter just before he died was to Wilberforce talking to him about slavery. Wesley was a great, a great social reformer, wrote many uh, pamphlets, uh, or very influential pamphlets against slavery, and because he had seen it in the United States, helped to get it abolished in England well before it was abolished in the United States. And it was because of uh, people like Wilberforce and, and Wesley's influence that slavery was abolished. So let me move forward. Wesley came to the United States many times and preached revival in the United States. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was also preaching in the United States. The Great Awakening is what Wesley's influence and Jonathan Edwards' influence were, were part of the American Revolution, part of the atmosphere in which our Constitution was drafted. Our founding fathers were greatly influenced by these preachers and by these messages. America was a tremendously, America was in a spirit of revival at the time of its founding. And so America was, was birthed in the Great Awakening and the Wesleyan Revival. And so it's very important that you understand that. And Wesley, because of his great organization, and because he was, even though he was Church of England, and yet he was allowed to perform these societies, he organized circuit riders who would ride in a circuit and they would preach as circuit riders. And it was none other than Billy Graham, who was saved by a Methodist circuit rider who, who writes, you know, in his diary, only one salvation, not a great meeting tonight, only one salvation, a tall young teenager, his name, William Graham. Yeah, wonderful. Wouldn't you like to have a copy of that uh, diary? Okay, very quickly, William Booth, a hundred years later, founder of the Salvation Army. William Booth becomes a uh, Methodist minister. At the time, in the mid-1800s, the East End of London is a disgusting, slimy, horrible place of tremendous poverty um, and just ho horrible, horrible conditions. And in the same time uh, as when Wesley preached his revival, the, the country was at a terrible low. Same thing when, when Booth began to, to minister, the, and the conditions in which he was ministering were just terrible, terrible, terrible. East End London, everybody was full of alcoholism, full of prostitution, 
at the time, it was legal for someone to become a prostitute at the age of 12. And it was Booth's ministry and uh, the Salvation Army that got that raised to 16. At first, they only, they only raised it to 13, and then they raised it to 16. There was that much prostitution going on in, in, in the East End of London. It was disgusting. When Booth worked in, in these areas, he would preach in these areas, and, and he would come home often bloodied uh, from rocks being thrown at him. Uh, street urchins would throw fireworks in the window, and, and just tremendous opposition from just the drunks and the rotten people in the area. So think about you know, what it would be like to, to minister, say, on Third Avenue, say, on El Camino. You know, nobody's really ready for you to go in, and preach on the streets on El Camino. Nobody's really ready for you to preach in front of Safeway. Think about it. That was, the, that was the types of places that these guys were ministering, places where you just wouldn't think of, of ministering. Nobody would do that sort of a thing. It's just not right to do that sort of thing. And that was the kind of opposition that these guys received. But who are you going to go and preach in front of Safeway? Somebody is, huh? You know, these guys did that. For something like 10 years, he, he preached in these areas, and, and nothing really happened. But they kind of had sort of a brainstorm or a time with God. I'd, I'd like to really study out the genesis of this, but his very struggling, very no-results ministry, all of a sudden he gets the idea of Salvation Army. And he changes it to the Salvation Army, and it's the Salvation Army. It's this divine-inspired, there it is. Many ministers in their biographies, Catherine Coleman's another one, who just preached along and preached along and soldiered along and soldiered along and soldiered along, and all of a sudden, miracles started taking place in her ministry. And then everything took off. Booth was just soldiering along and soldiering along and soldiering along. No dramatic things are going on. And he comes up with the Salvation Army. There were 500 ministries working in the East End of London at the time, and his was no different than anybody else's. But the Salvation Army caught on. And all of a sudden, everybody kind of gets a hold of that. And it really just starts to spring up. And, and things just take off from that point forward. Also, his wife, Catherine Booth, was a tremendous minister in her own regard. And, and he called her his co-equal. And that was one of the main differences between Booth and, and, and everybody else. He said, my best men are women. And that was one of the first, uh, the, one of the main things that he was persecuted for was that women were, were, were the leaders in the Salvation Army. Pastor Cho in Korea, who has the biggest church in the world, built it on the power of women. In that society, you know, you didn't, women didn't do anything. But in his organizational structure, women do everything. So it's very important things to, to, to just hear from church history. Booth at his time, the Salvation Army began, began to be opposed by something called the Skeleton Army, which was completely organized by the tavern owners. The tavern owners had the money. The tavern owners had everything to lose by his preaching because he is converting drunks. And basically their program was to find a drunk, get him saved, bring him to the Salvation Army meeting. The guy would get totally saved, totally delivered, totally sobered up, and the next day he would be preaching. They would put him up and he would preach about his deliverance the night before. That works. That really works. Because everybody knows him, and he's up there preaching to everybody that he knows. And the conversion rate was tremendous. And it just exploded. And his ministry just took off. But the skeleton army was beating them up with bats, beating them up with stones, beating them up with clubs, 
they were tremendous, tremendous beasts. People were killed on the streets. And he, and he had to fight and fight. And so did Wesley. They both had to fight in the courts to stop the ruffians from beating them up. It was that significant, the persecution that they encountered. By the time that Booth died, he was totally accepted and totally vindicated by polite society. But all the time that he worked through it, he was vilified and spoken against and beaten with bats until they were bloodied and sometimes killed when they would go out and do their stuff. This is in Western society. Are you ready? Are you going to just pay the price and soldier along and soldier along and soldier along and do what God has told you to do? Or are you going to quit after four years because nothing, you didn't, you didn't make the cover of Charisma magazine? You didn't, you know, you didn't get on television after four years. Or are you just going to continue and continue and continue? Are you going to do innovative things? All of these people did innovative things. And that's why that they're known in church history. All of these people had some ambition. All of these people had some, I'm going to do something. It says of Booth that uh, when he was 19 years old that he went and said to one of his buddies, Have you no ambition? Aren't you going to do something? Ed Cole says, I'm going to, God takes your personality and uses it and sanctifies it. God takes your music. God takes your art. God takes your creative talents. God takes your abilities and sanctifies them. God takes your firm will and does something with it, uses it. He just takes what you already are and sanctifies it and uses it. He just redeems your personality. So, that takes us up to the 1800s. I'd love to talk more, but we're kind of out of time. In, in two minutes, let me just give you from 1900s forward. 1900, Charles Parham goes, is in Kansas. Charles Parham, New Year's Eve of 1899-1900, you know, when the clock is going to turn to 1900, has an all-night prayer meeting. In that all-night prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit falls, and they begin to speak in tongues. Charles Parham was the leader of this group. Charles Parham then goes to Texas, and I believe it's in Houston, that he's preaching in Houston, that William Daddy Seymour, a black man, is listening to his message, hears his message, and this one-eyed black guy goes to Los Angeles, founds the Azusa Street Mission. Anybody ever heard of Azusa Street? Hallelujah. And in Azusa Street, Pentecost spreads to the entire world just goes to the entire world because Los Angeles is a, is a media center, it's a port, and people from all over the world are coming to Azusa Street, and somehow or another the Azusa Street really becomes magnified and emblazoned throughout the world. And so people from all over the world come to Azusa Street, and it goes throughout the world from Azusa Street in a fashion that had never happened that rapidly anywhere else. Pentecostalism was in Russia 100 years before, but uh, in, the, in the West, this is really where it took off from. Uh, Smith Wigglesworth gets the baptism in, in London. And John G. Lake comes out there from uh, Chicago. Also about that same time, John Alexander Dowie is uh, dealing with the bubonic plague in Australia. And the words just jump off the page about healing for him. By his stripes we were healed. And he realizes this and he goes over Oh, and actually it was Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And it came as an inspiration to him, and he went and he runs down the street, 
lays his hands on a dying person, a dying teenage girl who's dying from the bubonic plague, and she's instantly healed. He goes and he prays for her brother or sister in the other room who's instantly healed. Nobody else dies from bubonic plague in his congregation, and he understands divine healing. He comes to the United States, comes first through San Francisco, then goes to Chicago. In Chicago, he's unknown for quite a bit of time, but then all of a sudden the healing starts to take off, and his healing movement just grows at a tremendous rate. He found Zion, Illinois, John G. Lake, is a member of his congregation, becomes his financial advisor. Dowie goes off the deep end. Lake goes off to South Africa. South, in South Africa, he founds 500 churches. His wife dies because they're not quite understanding certain things, and he comes back, remarries, settles in Seattle. Gordon Lindsay gets healed under his ministry. Gordon Lindsay gets healed in his ministry. Gordon Lindsay is the founder of The Voice of Healing. The Voice of Healing is a magazine that covers all of the 1940s revival preachers, all of the, vo the, all of the healing preachers uh, at that time. Uh, Gordon Lindsay, very important figure in, in the healing revival of the 40s, founds Christ for the Nations. Kenneth Hagin was a Voice of Healing's uh, minister in the, in the 1940s, Assemblies of God preacher. Assemblies of God was founded out of the Azusa Pentecostal revival in the early 1900s and was organized in about 1913, uh, Assemblies of God. Kenneth Hagin was an ordained Assemblies of God minister and he studied the writings of Wigglesworth and the writings of E.W. Kenyon and eventually is the, becomes really what we call the founder of the Word of Faith movement. God says to Kenneth Hagin, go teach my people faith. He founds Rhema Bible Training Center in the 1970s and I am here because God told Kenneth Hagin, go teach my people faith. And so I'm here teaching, teaching God's people faith. The end. How old are you? <laughs>